Thanks for checking out this Church in the City podcast. For more information, please visit www.churchinthecity.us. If you have a Bible, I'd love for you guys, please, to turn to the book of John, the first chapter of the book of John, the gospel according to John. And we're going to be uh, starting our series there. There's a phrase that we as a church coined, uh, the leadership team of the church coined about uh, three, three years ago, fulfilling the Great Commission by obeying the greatest command. It probably should hopefully be familiar to those who've been around church for a while. Fulfilling the Great Commission by obeying the greatest command. It's a, it's a summary statement of what our desire is as a church to see Jesus exalted, to see people coming into a transforming, liberating relationship with Him, and as a consequence, to see our city and the nations impacted. And uh, over the last few years, this desire hasn't, hasn't waned. In fact, coming into 2015, for me personally, and I think for the eldership team and, and the leadership team, if anything, this passion, this desire has actually intensified. The great command, or the great commission, was this a task or this mandate that Jesus gave his disciples and subsequently the church right before he left and descended into heaven. It's recorded in Matthew 28, and um, it should be behind me on the screen. Matthew 28, Jesus says to his disciples in verse 19, he says, go and make disciples, go and make followers of Jesus, go and make disciples of all nations. That's an amazing phrase, because I think sometimes we, we, we limit the Great Commission to, to making followers of Jesus, of our friends and family. And, and as important as that is, what Jesus is actually entrusting us with is this task of making disciples of nations. It starts with our friends and family. It starts with sharing the gospel and the good news with them. But as this momentum begins to gather, entire nations are transformed and impacted. Jesus says in one of his parables, he says, the kingdom is, is like a mustard seed. It's the, it's the smallest of all the seeds, but, but it starts that way. And, and I'm sure you guys can attest to that. Sometimes it feels like the kingdom of God is so small and, and, and it's not really making a massive impact. But the promise of Jesus is this, is that the kingdom, once established, once planted, once rooted in somebody's life, will begin to grow. Neighborhoods impacted, cities impacted, just like that mustard seed growing to become the tree that houses so many birds and so many animals. So I say all that to say, friends, don't just view this great commission as something that only impacts your immediate circle of friends. I want you to see it in the context of God calling us to transform nations. It's, it's the Genesis 1 mandate given to Adam and Eve outworked in the New Testament. Go and extend kingdom culture. Go and, go and rule over the earth. Go and subdue the earth. Go and advance the kingdom of God. He says the same thing to Abraham in Genesis 12. Abraham, I'm going to bless you so that you can be a blessing. My favorite passage, I think, in all of the New Testament is Ephesians 1 verse 10, which summarizes, simply says this, that at the right time, at the fullness of time, God will bring all things in heaven and on earth under the lordship or the headship of Jesus Christ. And those of you who are here today who are followers of Jesus, you have been an, a, a blessed recipient of that amazing promise. But the amazing thing is you're not just a recipient, you've been invited to partner with God in advancing his kingdom into the nations as well. 
baptizing them. Go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. And, and Jesus goes on, he says, and teaching them. And I just want to pause and make a few little comments about that word, and teaching them. When we think of teaching, uh, we think of learning about God, we think of the word theology. And I want to say, friends, when you think of that word theology, don't think about the boring intellectual pursuit of studying God. That's not theology. Theology is devotional. Theology is learning about God. It's getting to know God. It's learning about his, his, his character. It's learning about his nature. It's learning about his heart and his plans and his purposes. Theology is not the boring study of God. Oh, for the day where a, where a seminary professor is teaching about the attributes of God and has to put down his lecture notes because he is weeping because he's so overcome by the, the goodness and greatness of God. Don't think classroom style. The book of Psalms is our model for learning theology. The psalmist writes, Oh, taste and see that the Lord is good. If that was a classroom, he would have said this. The Lord is good. But he invites us, he encourages us to, to enjoy this experience of God, taste of God, and see with your own eyes that God is good. David writes in one, in, in one of the other Psalms, Oh God, you are my God. Earnestly I seek you. My soul longs for you. My body longs for you in a dry and weary land where there is no water. Friends, the study of God, the study of theology is done together in worship and in prayer. Can I say, friends, that our theology class at Church in the City starts at 10 o'clock every morning, every Sunday morning when we gather? What the worship team did this morning was not just worship, it was a theology class. We were learning about God. We were, we were discovering more about who God is, and, 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 and that's how we learn theology. We learn theology through the struggles of life. When we face hardships and difficulties, we teach one another about the goodness of God and the faithfulness of God and the greatness of God. That's how God wants us to make disciples, teaching them to obey everything I have commanded you. I love how wonderfully culturally inappropriate those two words are. Obey commands. Isn't it wonderful? Our culture today is so afraid of absolute truth, so afraid of telling people to obey. No, Jesus is our King, our Lord, and we are called to obey His commands. He's a good God. And our motivation to fulfill this great commission, as I mentioned earlier, is this, is this greatest is this greatest command. What is the greatest command? The Pharisees asked Jesus in Matthew 22. And Jesus starts off his answer by saying this, not surprisingly, this, this well-known kind of response, love the Lord your God with all of your hearts and with all of your soul and with all of your strength. But then he doesn't stop there. He says, and the second is like it. There's actually two parts to, to the greatest command. Love the Lord your God but then he kind of picks this really obscure law from the book of Leviticus chapter 19. That it's actually, I went to look at it. It's listed under various other laws. It says there, love your neighbor as yourself. Love the Lord your God and love your neighbor as yourself. When we give ourselves to obeying the greatest command, we, we, we somewhat automatically fulfill the great commission. 
And can I say, friends, this is not just our emphasis for a preaching series. If we were only give, if we were giving our attention to the Great Commission and the Greatest Command as a preaching emphasis, let me tell you, it wouldn't be called the Great Commission or the Greatest Command. It would be co- it will be called a Good Commission, and, and a fairly important command if it was just a preaching series. But friends, this is the reason why you and I are on planet Earth. This is the reason why the Lord hasn't taken us home to be with Him. Because he still wants us to, to partner with him, as Mel was, was wonderfully sharing, to partner with him in advancing his kingdom, taking the gospel into our neighborhoods and into the nations, and seeing people transformed. So where do we start? Where do we start in answering this question, how, how, do, we, how, how do we fulfill this great commission by obeying the greatest command? What are our initial steps? And I would suggest to you this morning that it starts with, with loving God. That's surely the place we have to begin. We have to begin by by loving God. But the question is, who is God? Who is this God that we are called to love? Who is this this, this king that we are called to love with all of our hearts and with all of our soul and with all of our strength? Could I suggest that every single person in this room, whether you realize it or not, has already answered the question, who is God? And it shows in the way you live and spend your time and spend your finances and give priority to? That question has already been answered. But what we're interested in in the, in, the, in the coming 14 weeks, what we're interested in is finding out what does the Bible say about who God is. We want to learn from the scriptures about who God is. And so with that in mind, we are indeed starting a new series in the book of John entitled The Way to the Father. We're going to be looking at who God is and how we can get to know this God so that we are able to love him. Can I just say as an aside, just two quick things about this series. We're going to be doing it for 14 weeks. That means I probably can guarantee we've left your favorite passage of John out of the series. And for that, I apologize. But we had to be selective. We had to be selective. In 14 weeks, we had to pick and choose. So you could come and give me great arguments as to why we should have included the passage you love. But these are the ones we felt God on our hearts to do. Second thing I want to say is you can actually help yourselves, help us as a church learn and grow together if you are studying the book of John yourself over these next 14 weeks. We're going to do our best to tweet and to Facebook or face message, Facebook, FaceTime, whatever, face something. We're going to do our best to get the word out as to what passages you should be reading prior to the next week. And so right now, here's some homework for next week. Please read John Chapter 1, 2, and 3, if you can, before, before next Sunday. Most of you who know me love, uh, know that uh, I have an incredible love and passion for good coffee. I absolutely love a good cup of coffee. I've recently graduated to a drink called a, a Cortado, which is a, a Spanish drink, three shots of espresso with a small head of steamed milk. I went into Intelligentsia, which previously used to really intimidate me, that place. I mean, Intelligentsia really intimidated me. I walked in there the other day and ordered a Cortado, and the barista did this. I felt, I felt accepted. I felt, I felt part of the Intelligentsia crew. I felt I could wear a plaid shirt with confidence. I felt, I felt warmly received. But my... My love for coffee, my love for coffee started 16 years ago when I was doing a business trip to Venezuela. Prior to that time, uh, Debs and I had only drunk instant coffee in South Africa. And we had heard about, people had told us that, that there is this thing called real coffee, that, that filtered brewed coffee. But we, 
what our, our perceived love or understanding of coffee, our knowledge of how good coffee could be, only came because of what people told us. We never experienced it at all. Uh, I follow a guy called Church Commudgeon, which is one of the Twitter, Twitter feeds, and, and the Church Commudgeon has an incredible love for coffee. He, he tweeted this once, grown, harvested, roasted, and ground, pressed and heated, steamed and drowned, brewed into a glorious brown beverage of awakening. And 16 years ago, when I went to Venezuela, let me tell you, I enjoyed for the first time that delicious beverage of awakening. My, my, my heart, I, I, I suddenly realized that what I thought I knew about good coffee, I actually knew nothing at all. I had experienced coffee at a whole new level, at a whole new understanding. Amen. I'm a coffee evangelist. <laughs> The point I'm making is that an intellectual understanding of something, an intellectual knowledge of something will only get you so far. Jesus makes this incredible statement in John chapter 14 about this invitation that we have to get to know him so that we can get to know God. And he says this in John 14, he says, if you really knew me, you would know my father as well. The New Testament uses multiple Greek words for the one word that we translate as, as the word know. And so when Jesus makes that statement, if you really knew me, you would know my father as well. What does he mean by that word know? I want to use an illustration from marriage, but I think every one of us should be able to get this whether you're married or not. So picture a, a scene between a husband and wife. And uh, as, as wives tend to do, they, uh, they come to their husbands occasionally and say, honey, do you love me? And the husband tends to say, honey, you know I do. And then the wife says, I can see your husbands and wives smiling at each other right now. And then the wife says, then show me. You see, the, the, the miscommunication between husbands and wives is around the understanding of this word no. You see, when the husband says, when the, when the husband says honey, you know I love you, what he's basically saying is, honey, I tell you all the time. Honey, I do things for you. Honey, I go to work and provide and, 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 and I lead the family. You know that I love you. And those in the New Testament are actually valid understandings or, or, or interpretations of the word no. Sometimes in the Bible, in the New Testament, the word no is, is spoken of something that you see or something that you hear about or something that you learn intellectually. But that's not the no that the wife is talking about, is it? The, exactly. I speak from experience. The, the wife is saying, I don't care about what I see or what I, what I hear. I want to experience love deep in my heart. I want to know that you love me. That's the know that Jesus is talking about when he says, if you knew me, you would know my father. Deeply experiential. I know I've used this illustration before, but the story is told, told of Blaise Pascal, who was a, a 17th century philosopher and mathematician, and, and he knew about God. And uh, when he died, they were going through his belongings, and this, this, this document they found is actually uh, housed in, in a museum in France. It's a page taken from his journal that he had uh, rolled up and sewn into the, the seam of his coat. And that journal reads like this. In the year 1654, Monday, 23rd November, from about half past 10 
in the evening until about half past 12. And then the next line just says this word, fire. And then underneath that it says, God of Abraham, God of Isaac, God of Jacob, not the God of the philosophers and the scholars. Certainty, joy, assurance, peace, joy, 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 tears of joy, submission, total and sweet, total surrender to Jesus. You see, what happened on that night at, 10, at, uh, um, at half past 10 in the evening was Blaise Pascal, by the power of the Holy Spirit, came to experience Jesus for the first time. He knew him as the God of the philosophers and the God of the scholars. But the Spirit of God awakened his heart that he, for the first time, experienced God in his heart. And friends, I want to say, as we start this new year and as we go through this this book of John, we're going to learn some amazing things about God. We're going to learn some amazing things about Jesus. But if we don't allow the Spirit of God to first awaken our heart, all we're going to be doing is filling ourselves with useful information. But it's not going to change our lives. It's not going to transform our marriages. It's not going to bring us confidence and hope in times of disappointment and, and discouragement. It's not going to bring us faith to trust for our neighbors to be transformed. We need to trust together, friends, as we start this series, that this would, more than be, this would be much more than just a, a theological exercise. But together we would taste and see the goodness of God. And so I want to pause for a moment and actually pray for us right now. But before we go any further, we would say, God... Please, by your spirit, awaken my heart. Awaken my heart, just like you did with Blaise Pascal, so that I can know you, so that I can experience you. Can you pray that with me? I'll pray. But if that's, if that's your desire for this year, if you're, if, you're, if you're wanting to experience God in fresh and new ways, if you're wanting to, 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 to take steps forward in Him, if you're wanting, wanting things that have been holding you back to be shaken off, let me tell you, it starts with a revelation of God. And so, Father, I pray right now in Jesus' name, by your Spirit, that you would just come and fall upon us. As the worship team led us this morning, Lord, would you, would you rain down on us? Would you, would you sensitize our hearts? Holy Spirit, would you cause our, our hearts, the eyes of our hearts to be opened so that we can, can, can see you, Jesus, so that we can know you experientially, that we, that we could know your presence working deep in our hearts. Come and change us, Lord, I pray. Come and transform us this year. Let this be a year of, 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 of old, old things being put aside, old things being broken off, chains being broken off, heavy weights being laid down, and us stepping into the fullness of joy joy, the fullness of rest, the fullness of peace that you want us to experience. Lord, as as one who's going to teach most of this series, I, I want to pray right now that this would not be just learning information. But I pray this would be hearts and lives changed because we've seen you, Jesus. I pray. Amen. So who is this God that we are called to love? And how, how do we get to know him? How do we get to experience him? Well, the book of John is written, the purpose of the book of John is written so that we could get to know Jesus. Listen to what John writes in John chapter 20, verse 31. He says, this book is written that you might know and believe that Jesus is the Christ, 
the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in His name. In other words, if you get to know Jesus, you get to know God. And that will help us answer the first thing in this kind of great, in this greatest command, love the Lord your God with all your heart and soul and strength. John chapter, 1 verse one, John chapter 1 verse 1 to 18 is an introduction to the entire gospel. And we're going to very quickly over the next 10 minutes just walk through some, some introductory comments that will set us up for the series to come. Uh, the first 18 verses of the, book of, of the first chapter of John is like a content page of what are some of the truths that we're going to discover in the weeks to come. The point I want to make today is simply this. We can get to know God if we get to know Jesus, because, and there's three things we're going to look at. Firstly, because Jesus is God, because Jesus is the way to God, and because Jesus shows us the glory of God. Jesus is God, Jesus is the way to God, and Jesus shows us or reveals to us the glory of God. Read with me if you can the first three verses. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was with God in the beginning. Through Him all things were made. Without, without Him nothing was made that has been made. We can get to know God by getting to know Jesus because Jesus is God. Jesus was, was uh, just like the Father. He, he, he's the Word. The, the Word is the title that is given to the Son of God. And just like the Father, Jesus is eternal. Some translations uh, say in verse 1, in the beginning, the Word was already there. But as verse 1 unpacks, it says to us that although Jesus is God, he is distinct from God. Look at verse 1. The Word was, was with God, and the Word was God. Now, that is probably some of the most baffling and mysterious writing in all of Scripture. And this is the, the challenging and wonderful truth about learning about God. Friends, sometimes learning about God is not logical. I know that's stretching. I know that's challenging for some, but learning about God is not always logical. This verse, first verse introduces us to the concept of the Trinity, that God, who is one, exists as three persons, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. This, this community of, of selfless, self-giving love is at the very center of the universe, and if you know Jesus, is at the very center of your life. Each of the three persons exists to, to, to bring glory to the other. They, they make space, as it were, for, someone, for, for one of the others to thrive. The Holy Spirit is always giving glory to Jesus. Jesus is always honoring the Father. The Father desires that Jesus have the name that is above every name. And while it doesn't make sense necessarily intellectually, let me tell you, it makes perfect sense relationally. We were invited to, 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 to have relationship with God the Father as His children. Jesus is our Lord and Savior. The Holy Spirit is our counselor who, who leads us and guides us and empowers us. The Trinity doesn't make any sense intellectually, friends, but it makes perfect sense if you're living in relationship with Jesus because that's what the Bible is all about. It's not about learning who God is intellectually. It's about experiencing God in the depths of your heart. And as the Son of God, verse 3, verse 3 tells us, as the Son of God, Jesus shared in the work of creation. He is the agent of creation. Colossians chapter 1, verse 16 says this, For by Him, 
by Jesus, through Jesus, all things were created, things in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or powers or rulers or authorities, all things were created by Jesus and for Jesus. It is impossible for anything or anyone to be greater than Jesus Christ. That's the Savior I want. I want to be saved by the creator of the heavens and the earth. Because that means there is no name greater than his. And that's the Savior that we serve. Paul writes in Romans chapter 8 that if, if God has given us the greatest thing, Jesus, his son, would he not also give us everything else that we need for life and godliness? No matter whatever situation you find yourself in, friends, if you have Jesus, let me tell you, you have everything you need for life and godliness. If God is going to give you the, great, the greatest gift he could ever give you, why would he skimp and hold on to some of the other things that we might need? That's the confidence that we have. We can get to know God by getting to know Jesus because Jesus is God. But secondly, we can get to know God by getting to know Jesus because Jesus is the way to God. Read with me verse 4. In him was life. In Jesus was life. And that life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness, but the darkness has not understood it. There came a man who was sent from God. His name was John, John the Baptist, not the author of this particular text. Verse 7, he came as a witness to testify concerning that light, so that through him all men might believe. He himself was not the light. He came only as a witness to the light. Can I just make a comment and say, please avoid the danger of putting anything between you and God. Don't put your don't put the church between you and God. Don't put the intellectual pursuits of studying the Bible between you and God. Don't put me or any of the elders between you and God. We are not your mediator. You have personal access into the presence of God through Jesus Christ, your Lord and Savior. Verse 9, the true light that gives light to every man was coming into the world. He was in the world, and though the world was made through him, the world did not recognize him. He came to that which was his own, but his own did not receive him. Yet to all who received him, to those who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. Children born not of natural descent, nor of human decision, or of a husband's will, but born of God. Verse 10 and verse 11 tell us, friends, that before we knew God, we were dead I've said this before last year when we were teaching through Ephesians, but friends, before you knew God, you were not just going through a tough time. You were not just needing to center yourself. You were not just needing to find your way. You were dead. You were as responsive to God as a corpse would be. It was Jesus who came into our life. Without God, it's like living death. Blind to the glory of God, Deaf to the voice of the Spirit, hardened to the love of the Father. It's a life that we don't want to live. But verse 12 and 13 tells us that in Jesus, we have received new life by being born again. The point of salvation, friends, is not to make you good. It's not to make bad people good. The point of salvation is to make dead people alive. Not only were we dead, we were condemned and we were in bondage to sin. Ephesians chapter 2 tells us, but God, who was rich in mercy, even though we were dead, brought us alive through his son, Jesus Christ. And we do so, as verse 12 and 13 tell us, by receiving and believing 
Jesus for who he is. We receive Jesus by opening up our empty hand. Don't ever forget that there's nothing that we bring to the salvation equation. We receive Jesus as Lord and Savior by opening up our empty hand. We cannot earn salvation. We receive him as he is, the person of Jesus, the divine word of God, the son of God, the creator, the Lord and king and savior of the world. We receive him and believe in his name. The incredible truth, friends, is in an instant, in an instant, you are welcomed into the family of God. In the blink of an eye, the moment you receive and believe in Jesus, you are welcomed into the family of God. Your life has been transformed. Your life has been turned around. You've been given new life, eternal life. You've become alive to God. You are able to hear God. You are able to respond to him. You have his face constantly shining upon you. The spirit of God blowing on your lives. In an instant and then progressively through the rest of our lives, we become that which we already are. We become holy, those who are being made holy, as Hebrews tells us. One of the incredible privileges of being children of God is that we have access into the presence of God at any time, no matter what you've done. Access into God's presence. Do you live that way? As a child of God, do you live knowing that you have access into God's presence? At any moment of the day, no matter what you've done. This is the year to live like that. We can know God because Jesus is God. We can know God because Jesus is the way to God. And then lastly, I will just say this. We can know God because Jesus shows us the glory of God. Look at verse 14. And the word became flesh. means that Jesus took on the, the, the limitations of, of, of humanness. Jesus was one who needed to pray. Jesus was one who grew tired. Jesus was one who was tempted. Jesus required the strength of the Father to enable him to live. Jesus needed the guidance and the leading of the Holy Spirit. He took on the ordinariness of human life. The Word became flesh and and dwelt among us. And we have seen His glory. The glory as of the only son from the father, full of grace and truth. Friends, I want to make one comment. This is a passage we could take weeks to unpack, but I want to make one comment. An Israelite reading that verse would be horrified. We have seen the glory of God. Do you remember in Exodus when Moses goes to God and says, God, show me your glory. What does God say? Moses, no one can see my glory and, and survive. I need to put you into the cleft of a, of a rock and hide your face so that as I pass by, you can see the back end of my glory. Moses says, God, show me your glory. And God says, you cannot see my glory and survive. What does Jesus say about us seeing God's glory? If you see me, if you know me, you not only see God's glory, but you get to know and experience God's glory. Isn't that remarkable? In Jesus We get to see and experience the glory of God. But can I say this? Don't trivialize the glory of God. Don't sentimentalize the glory of God. It's not kind of cuddling up to God next to a warm, cozy fire. No, 
It's God empowering us to be all that he's called us to be. Verse 16, from his fullness, from the generous bounty of Jesus, we have all received grace upon grace. Gift after gift after gift after gift of grace has been poured out on our lives. For, for the law was given through Moses, grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. We have become his righteousness. We have become righteous in him. We have received his status before God. We became a son of God just as Jesus is the son of God. We received something of Jesus' mind, his Holy Spirit. His angels are, are, are watching over us. His death has, 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 death has no power over us because we have died in Christ. We share his ascension. We are seated in heavenly places. Our lives are hidden with Christ in God. His heavenly home is ours. Grace and truth wasn't just given. Grace and truth came in the form of of Jesus Christ. He is the grace of God, and he is the truth of God. And as we land, verse 18 is the point of not only today's sermon, but it's the point of this entire series. Look at verse 18. No one has ever seen God, the only God, who is at the Father's side. He has made him known. Not known intellectually, friends. You can know Jesus experientially. And as you come to know Jesus experientially, you can walk into the experience of knowing God in a life-transforming way. Hebrews chapter 1 tells us, Jesus is the radiance of God's glory and the exact representation of his being. Before I hand over to James, I'm going to ask us if we can stand together. I was asking God, what is our response to the sermon today? And like we tend to do and love to do at this church we're often looking for ways that we can pray and, and minister over one another and release the power of God over one another. And perhaps there will be opportunities for that to happen. Perhaps today there will be chance for, for specific things, for God to highlight specific things in our lives. But I thought it would be appropriate for us today to respond in worship. Not singing worship, not getting the band up here to lead us in song, but for us simply to take a few moments, just one or two minutes, to stand right where we are, eyes closed, if you're comfortable, hands raised, heads, uh, eyes looking to the heavens, and just to begin to thank Jesus for who he is. Can I ask you to do that even now, as we stand here? Just open your hands, begin to thank Jesus, begin to declare his goodness, begin to declare his majesty, begin to thank him for, for, for coming and revealing the glory of the Father to us. To us. Begin to thank him for, for your salvation. If you're here today and you do not know Jesus as Lord and Savior, I want to say right now as you are standing, you can say, Jesus, I want to know you this year. I want to know you today. Would you come into my heart? Would you reign and rule in my heart? I receive you as my Lord and Savior. I believe that you are who you say you are, the Son of God, the one who died, the one who was raised from the dead, the one who was seated at the right hand of the Father. If you're here today and you don't know Jesus, ask him into your life right now. Those of us who are followers of Jesus, let's just thank God that he is, has sent his Son as King Let's not be afraid of that, friends. Let's not be afraid of the fact that Jesus is King and Lord. Jesus, we surrender. We surrender to you. We surrender to you. We lay our lives down before you, Lord, this year. We lay our lives down before you. 
We surrender our hearts. We surrender our dreams. You are worth it, Jesus. Thank you for saving us. Thank you for rescuing us. Thank you, Lord. Just continue to lift your voices to him. Just just 30 seconds more. Surrendering your hearts to him. In Jesus' name. Thank you, Lord. Thank you, Lord.